Howdy, folks. This is the Words of Truth from Scriptures podcast. I'm Brian Yeager. Thanks for tuning in to listen to our study this time. We're going to be talking about 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. I am super excited about the text. Great things to talk about. If you are tuning into this for the first time, you'll want to back up and listen to the podcast on 1 Peter 1, 1 and 1 Peter 1, 2 as we're keeping it in context and talking about uh, things that build upon each other. Last week, we talked about 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, how those that Peter are addressing are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And how Peter said unto them, Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Well, from that... We talked a little bit about how the people that Peter is writing to, the saints that Peter are writing to, were Gentiles, predominantly at least. We know that because of 1 Peter 2 and verse 10, which says, which in times past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And this is kind of a huge point to consider in our study today. Because these Christians, in being Gentiles, means in the past they did not have hope. And Ephesians chapter 2, in a context that's talking to Gentiles in Ephesus about where they stood with God during the time that the law of Moses was in effect, says in Ephesians 2 and verse 12 that at that time ye were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So today we are talking about the lively hope by the resurrection of Christ in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. This is huge because these Christians have not had a hope like they do in Christ at any time wherein they may have pursued God in any way. But because of Christ, and you know, we, we could talk about this from a Gentile or from a Jewish perspective as well. The Jews under the law of Moses could not be justified, could not be made just in the sight of God, Acts 13, 38, and 39. They had fear of death that is taken away in Christ. You see that if you study through the book of Hebrews and, and other uh, texts in the scriptures. So the Yes, there's an application to this that would apply to the Jews of old as well. But the Jews of old, Deuteronomy chapter 7, were God's people. The Gentiles were not. The law of Moses, like we talked about from Ephesians 2 last week, was a middle wall of partition between those that were Jewish and those who were not. And that law kept them separate to a degree. But now... Under the new covenant, we who are not direct descendants of Abraham according to the flesh, we have a hope. In the letter written to the saints in Colossae, Colossians 1, 25 through 27 says, Whereof I am made a minister, Paul writing that, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which had been hid from ages and from generations, 
but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Folks, awesome stuff to think about from the perspective that likely if you're listening to this podcast, you're a Gentile. I've never met somebody that was truly what under the law of Moses would be considered a Jew in the flesh. Likely you're a Gentile. If we were alive at the time Isaiah was a prophet or Jeremiah was a prophet or Micah was a prophet, etc., 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 we would not be talking about hope from God. Now we can. That hope is in Christ, and we have a hope of glory, and it's forward-looking. It's forward-looking to the final return of Christ for all of mankind. In Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there is no longer two systems of faith where the Jew is under the law of Moses and the Gentiles the law unto themselves. Now, we have one faith, Ephesians 4 and verse 5. One gospel that all can live by, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Folks, that is a awesome fact. If we as Gentiles look back at the history of the world, Gentiles were not known for pursuit of the knowledge of the God of Israel. They were known more for their actions in the act of idolatry. It's why God wanted to separate the Jews from the Gentiles so that they didn't learn. If you go back and read Deuteronomy 7 and other texts, so they didn't learn of their ways with their other gods. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, Ye know that ye were Gentiles, carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led, meaning mute idols, idols that cannot speak. That's the word dumb there is in reference to. Peter later is going to write in the epistle we are studying in 1 Peter 4 and verse 3, For the time past of our life may have sufficed us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. So who were the gods of the Gentiles? So many, so many. And folks, there's not hope in idolatry, then or now. God, through Jeremiah, says in Jeremiah 3.23, Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly, and the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. God has always been, will always be, the only source of salvation. And that hope, as we're looking at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, I want you to keep this kind of in the back of your mind. That hope that now is equal, available to all mankind is a game changer. When you think about the wording of Psalm 42, 11, why art thou cast down, O my soul? 
Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. So the psalmist here, being cast down, ask himself this question, why am I cast down? Why am I in this position? Put my hope in God. Well, now, hey, you Gentiles, as 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 is written, and if you remember everything we've talked about in our two previous lessons, they're scattered. Persecution, and it contextually, is a reality. They're facing, uh, you know, not only whatever the Roman Empire may have thrown at him, but Jews, both within the body and without the body, were rejecting Gentiles. You see it within the body in Acts 15. You see it without, like we talked about last week, where they were forbidding the gospel. The Jews were forbidding the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles. And I don't want to re-preach all of that, so I will move on from it. But just to remind you of the potential state of mind of a people who are being pursued and for them to keep in mind, you have a hope because they have may spent much of their lives without that hope. It's a good reminder. You now have it. So the text we're going to talk about today in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 that I just read to you. Let's break it down. Let's think about it. Let's, let's contemplate the wording here. Let's start off with blessed, or as the word means, praise, to be the God the Father. Why is this? Because he's the ultimate source of salvation. Now listen, have you ever heard somebody say, I'm saved by Christ alone? Well, what about the Father's role? What about what God, the Father, had in play here. In 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3, it says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Why would everybody why would anybody want to remove the Father? In Ephesians 1 3 that we read last week, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Who is getting the ultimate credit here? God the Father is. I want you to think about that. Jesus came and was delivered up by whose will? In Romans 8, 31 and 32, it says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. Who's getting the credit here? God the Father. What did Jesus say? In John 5, 30, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of my Father which hath sent me. And the next chapter in John, chapter 6, verse 38, 
Jesus says, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Now, we might hone in on the fact that all authority and heaven and earth was given to Jesus. That's not wrong to focus on. That is the truth. Matthew 28 and verse 18. But, but, sometimes people have an inability to process that though Jesus the Christ has been given all authority in heaven and in earth, that there still is an order. And God the Father is at the head of that. That's not Brian's opinion. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, it is written, but, Paul to, to the saints in Corinth, but I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ. So whose headship over man? Jesus is, right? The head of the woman is the man. Now notice, and the head of Christ is God. Hmm. Why is it that sometimes people just have the inability or seemingly have the inability to process that? That when they think of Christ Jesus, they want to think of him as the lone actor in the plan of redemption and forget that God the Father is the one that sent him. I don't know why there's that disconnect. One of the most popular, if not the most popular, passages in the entirety of the Word of God is John 3, 16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God the Father sent Jesus. Jesus acknowledged it. He, we read that in John 5.30 and John 6 and verse 38. Jesus wants people to know that. Jesus, when he taught, for example, when Jesus saw multitudes, he went up into a mountain in Matthew chapter 5, and his disciples came to them, and he taught his disciples. And in the context of what he taught his disciples in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he says in verse 14, 15, and 16, and we will pay special attention to verse 16. He says, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You notice what Jesus taught the disciples? Glorify God the Father. Your works. Glorify God the Father. That doesn't separate the glorification of Christ. It doesn't nullify Christ's authority. It doesn't remove the fact that Jesus is the head of the church, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. It doesn't change any of those things. No, it doesn't. But it does put in its pop proper perspective that God the Father is to be praised, especially in the context of what we're talking about in regard to the lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus 
did the actions at the will of God the Father. Jesus will return, come again at the will of the Father. In Acts chapter 17, Paul had seen the city of Athens given holy to idolatry. His spirit was stirred within him. So he, he, he preached. In Acts 17, 22 through 31, Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worship with man's hands as though he needed anything, seeth he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord." If happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from, in, uh, far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are his offsprings. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day, in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, where he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he raised him from the dead. So, putting all that together, it's God the Father who has appointed a day in which Jesus is going to judge this world. It is an appointment that God the Father has made. Folks, crystal clear. And by the way, only God the Father knows when Jesus is going to return. In Mark chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, it says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father, the Father only, Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 24, 35 and 36. Abundantly clear. You see the headship of the Father there. Think about what Jesus himself said to the Samaritan woman that he conversed with in John 4. In John 4, 23 and 24, he says, The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father. Notice that. Worship the Father. Jesus doesn't refer to himself in that light, right? And spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. When you look at how Jesus taught the disciples to pray, whether you look at Matthew 6 or Luke 11, it's to God the Father. All of these things identify undeniable truths. Further, Think about what Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 28 through 31. He says, you, ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye love me, you would rejoice because I said, I go unto the Father. 
My father is greater than I. Did you hear Jesus' words there? My father is greater than I. Whew. He said, now I have told you before it come to pass that when it come to pass, you might believe. Hereafter, I will not talk much with you. For the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do arise, let us go. So when Peter says to these Gentile Christians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is spot on with what the Word of God clearly teaches, and what we ought to be practiced. Now, did you know this is language? Blessed be the God. In 2 Corinthians eleven thirty one, 31, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. In 1 Peter 5, 10, but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Blessed be the God. There is one God, right? Now, now we know uh, that people get all kinds of crazy messed up on this point. What Peter is talking about is the singular Father in heaven. The ultimate authority is Him, right? We know when the seven ones were mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, there is one body, one spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. So he's in reference to the Father. He's not saying that Jesus is not deity or that the Holy Spirit's not deity. We know that because other scriptures confirm that they are. And Romans 9, 1 through 5 says, I save the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing with me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, Notice what he says. Who is overall God, blessed forever. In reference to the Holy Spirit in Acts 5, context here, the Christians in Jerusalem were selling their possessions because in Acts 2, the first gospel sermon was preached after Jesus had ascended into heaven. Some 3,000 people uh, were baptized into Christ, Acts 2, 38 through 41. But they were, when you read the context uh, Acts 2, 5 and following, they were from all over the earth. Well, there was only one congregation on earth at this time, so they stayed in Jerusalem. But their homes were not in Jerusalem. Their farms or whatever way of employment they had was not in Jerusalem. So saints in Jerusalem were selling their possessions. They were helping these people. They had pulled all their funds together. They were together and had all things common. I think that's the language in Acts 2, 44, I mean, it's in that context, but let me get, let me make sure. Um, yeah, all that believed were together and had all things common, Acts 2, 44. In that context, Acts 5, 1 through 4, I just gave you the context. It's not really relative to what we're pulling from this. 
we're pulling from this that the Holy Spirit's also God. He's deity, but he's not the Father. Jesus is not the Father. There's one Father, okay? Acts 5, 1 through 4 says, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to, notice what he says, the Holy Ghost, and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not thine own? After it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, notice, but unto God. Who was God there? The Holy Ghost. So this isn't Peter saying that Jesus and the Holy Ghost are not deity. It is just isolating like Ephesians 4, uh, 4 through 6, the singular God, the Father. When we look at the scriptures, notice this. Just to kind of illustrate the language a little bit. Jesus is called the Son in 1 John 5, 12. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Does this change the fact that God has other sons? No, in the same book, in 1 John 3 and verse 1, it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Same letter, same Holy Ghost, inspiring the same man to write, says there are other sons, but there is the one son that you refer to as it relates to Holy Ghost. Just as there is the one God, the Father, who you reference when it comes to who ought to be praised. God has children. and We're going to come back to 1 John 3 uh, a little bit later. But God has children. Those who have come out of darkness, you know, in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell with them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So when we read references to Christ being the Son, 1 John 5, 12, that doesn't eliminate the fact that Christians are also the sons of God, or as we read there, sons and daughters of God. It's just an emphatic statement. And I didn't want to pass it over. It's pointing out who God the Father is, who deserves the glory. When we look at the language of the scriptures, Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you slew and hanged on a tree. It's just exalting the Father and putting him where he belongs. Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's putting him where he is. Think on this. In John 17, 1 through 3, Jesus contextually in a prayer, these words spake, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life as to many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, 
that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Think about how Jesus exalts his Father there. The language that he uses. Paul, to the saints in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 8, context is authorized liberties, says in verse 6, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. The authorized liberty here he's talking about is the authority to eat meats that may have been offered to idols with the exception that it might cause a weak saint to stumble. You cause knowingly cause a weak Christian to stumble, then you are sinning against God. Don't want to do that. In that context, though, Paul elevates as we all ought to Praise be to God, the Father, the God, right? We should get that. I just love that he, he, that the wording here in 2 Peter 1, 3 is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I think about it and think about it and think about it, I thought, you know what? Here are people with a past in idolatry. We know that, 1 Peter 4, 3. We read that already to just remind them with the right word, praise the God, praise the Father. Now, from there, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, We're talking about the mercy of God, the Father. Why? Because he's the one that sent Jesus. He's the one that appoints the time in which the resurrection at the last day will occur. Ultimately, the scheme of redemption comes back to him. Though he did not come to this earth and die on the cross, as we even read from the words of Christ, Christ came to do his will. So his mercy is what we're talking about. In Numbers 14, 18, it says, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty. So there's that clarification. It's not that, hey, God's just going to overlook sin. He doesn't unconditionally forgive sin. He commands repentance and conversion, Acts 3.19. But the text says, He will also visit the iniquity of the father upon the children into the third and fourth generation. Sin has consequences, those consequences, they go forward. But God's mercy is not to be underplayed or ignored. He is of great mercy. He could have annihilated mankind how many times? Allows Moses to intercede for Israel. God, 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 God gets angry. But then his mercy comes into play. In Psalm 145, 8, the Lord is gracious, gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. In Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Part of the language we see in 1 Peter 1 here in our text in verse 3 that 
which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again. Hath begotten us again. You know, in the beginning, God's the creator, right? When we go back to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. But then we have the language in the Bible of being born again, such as in John 3, 1 through 5. What we see in the context of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. If I remember from my word study, and you can double check this if you'd like, uh, I'm putting it out there as if I remember correctly. You know what? Let me just do this real quick. Let, let me make sure. I think 1 Peter 1, 23 is the only other time that that same Greek word is used. If I remember, hath begotten us is Strong's number 13, and it appears twice in the New Testament, and it is 1 Peter 1, 23 and 1 Peter 1, 3. Being born again, not of corruptible seed. So as he's writing these saints, as Peter's writing these saints, um, talking about being begotten again, being born again, it's of the word of God. That's what this context says to them. Now, we talked about all of that when we were studying about their being elect in our last lesson. Remember when we were talking about Romans 6, 1 through 11, and the regeneration in Titus 3, 1 through 7, and the work of of uh, the Holy Spirit and sanctification. We talked about those things last week, so I won't re-preach that. But just to kind of remind you and to put it forth here, the being begotten, being born again is according to his abundant mercy. Why? Because God the Father delights in mercy. Micah records, Micah 7, 18, who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. In the book of Lamentations, they're lamenting as they're in captivity. Judah and Benjamin taken into captivity in Babylon because of the sins of themselves and their fathers. In fact, we'll, we'll come to something that was said after that here, after we look at Lamentations 3, 22 and 24, through 24. It says, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. So, hey, even though we're suffering punishment, it's God's mercy that they weren't destroyed utterly. It says, because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faith, faithfulness, the Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. So when, as we're talking about mercy and as we're talking about hope, we can go back and study the Old Testament and we can see that though Israel did so many things that are so frustrating. You know, when we went through a study of the Old Testament over years here in El Paso, we went verse by verse through the Old Testament and came together and discussed it. Uh, Often in our class discussions, the brethren here were frustrated. Why does Israel keep doing this? God delivers them, they go back to sin. He punishes them, he delivers them, they go back to sin. And it's like this roller coaster where it's up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. But 
you're reminded throughout the Old Testament as God the Father reminds himself and is reminded of. He made a promise to Abraham through his seed, all the nations of the earth be blessed, Genesis 22, 18. So he is merciful. And we ought to be abundantly thankful that God was merciful to the children of Israel. For through his mercy to them, we have the hope of eternal life. His mercy goes way back, folks. So I said we'd come to after captivity. Look at the words in Nehemiah 9, 24 through 31. So, so the children of Israel went in and possessed the land. Just kind of giving a historical rundown here. And thou subduest them before the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gavest them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, then might, that they might do with them as they would. And they took strong cities and a fat land and possessed houses full of goods, wells digged, vineyards, olive yards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in thy great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs and slew thy prophets, which testified against them to turn to thee. And they wrought great provocations. Therefore, thou deliveredest them into the hands of their enemies who vexed them and in the time of their trouble, when they cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven. And according to thy manifold mercies, thou gavest them saviors, who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before thee. Therefore, leftest thou them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had the dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven. And many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies, and testifiedest against them, that thou mightest bring them again unto thy law. Yet they dealt proudly, and hearkened not unto thy commandments, but sinned against thy judgments, which, if a man do, he shall live in them, and withdrew the shoulder, and hardened their neck, and would not hear. Yet many years didst thou forbear them, and testified against them by the Spirit in thy prophets. Yet would they not give ear. Therefore gavest thou in the hand of the, of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. So there you have it, folks. The rundown I gave you, given by an inspired man. The mercy of God. A lot of people don't understand mercy. A lot of people are unmerciful. Uh, we live in a time where there's this phrase called cancel culture, where somebody might have done something in 2002, and somebody reports about it in 2023, and that person may have changed greatly. But society wants to write them off, fire them from jobs, ostracize them, cast them into a deep, dark hole, because man tends to not know mercy. Jesus taught the Pharisees. Look at this in Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. 
And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you want to talk about the mercy of God, there is a whole flow of thought there to think about. Jesus came in the world not for those that were righteous and especially self-righteous like many of the Pharisees, but to save sinners. He wants us to be merciful as He is merciful. In Luke 6, 36, Be therefore merciful as your Father also is merciful. And in the end, James 2, 13 teaches, For He shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Like we were just talking about here in a class last Sunday in El Paso, in Luke 11 and verse 4, Jesus talking to His disciples about prayer gives them these words, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Folks, God the Father is abundantly merciful. He expects that to be replicated by His people. So we not only need to think about His mercy as it pertains to us, but how we extend such to others. For that, you better understand the subject matter of mercy, not just for your own comfort, but for godly living, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again. Mercy is the womb of second chances, third chances. When you look at the history of Israel, umpteen chances. Wow. Thank you, God the Father. I don't know about who you are listening to this podcast, but I am thankful that God is long-suffering and merciful because I do not, of my own accord, deserve to go to heaven. I am thankful for forgiveness. In fact, come back and listen to Tuesday's podcast. We're going to be talking about some things relative to that. Well... As we go through this verse, though, begotten again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it is commonly called the resurrection chapter, and that is fitting. It's easy to remember it that way because that is the primary subject of the chapter. Now, why it's written, the Christians in Corinth, we're struggling with the fact of the resurrection. This is really sad because as Peter is pointing out to these Gentile saints, the lively hope of a Christian is by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So let's think about what Paul wrote to Corinth. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 22. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which, after you have received, which also you have received, wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if ye keep in memory 
what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, that He was seen of Cephas and of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, He was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I... But the grace of God which was with me. Remember this verse in Tuesday's podcast. Verse 11. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believed. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ, ris is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. And your faith is also vain. Now, now I'm going to stop here. I'm going to keep reading, though. I want you to think about the wording that we're talking about in our lesson in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you think about that, with what we just read, if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith, then you see it, right? You get it. Boom. Grab that connection. Verse 15. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, notice this, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Woo! Now you get it. Now you get it, right? Unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's the first fruits, right? Notice as we go on. Verse 18. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished, if in this life... Only we have hope in Christ. We are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That's how the lively hope is based upon the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The tie to salvation is very clear. In Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25, it says, We are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seen, what they doth hope for. But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Folks, we walk by faith, not by sight. Our hope is looking forward. Our hope 
is in Christ. That's wonderful, right? That's, that's just beautiful. Our faith, looking forward, thinking about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, how He was the firstborn from the dead. When we get later down in chapter 1 to verse 9 of 1 Peter, we're going to see the wording, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Earlier I read 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. I want to come back to that text now, just momentarily, because I want us to think about what hope does for us, not just gives us something to look forward to, but is a motivator. You know, here, here, here listen, a lot of people use staying away from hell as a motivator for people to be obedient. But through the scriptures, the primary motivation for Christians to remain faithful is loving God and being in eternity with Him. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Our motivation for being pure is the hope. Now, on the other hand, what about hopelessness? I did a podcast not long ago where we talked about the world of hopelessness. I mean, we live in a world where major cities in the United States of America are shutting up and locking up everything in stores because people are looting. We live in a world where we can't trust the authorities. We live in a world that we can't trust people that might be our neighbors this isn't new, though. The whole world lieth in wickedness. That was written in 1 John 5, 19. We just might see it more on television or on social media. The fact has been the world is evil for thousands of years. That doesn't give us hope in this life. Whatever you achieve in this life, Somebody might come and take it from you. I mean, think about why the phrase eminent domain exists. If the government wants to put a highway where your house is, they are going to do it. And if you think you're going to appeal to the courts, ask Native Americans how that went. Ask people in a lot of different places. Here in El Paso. I mentioned this and I think it was the podcast about hope where the city of El Paso wanted to build something downtown. They wanted to build a sports arena downtown. They they took people's houses. They haven't even built it. it. That was years ago and they haven't even done anything with the land. But people were removed from their homes. What hope is there in this world? What happens in the face of hopelessness. 
in Job chapter 7, 1 through 11. Is there not an appointed time to man upon earth? Are not his days also like the days of an hireling? As a servant earnestly desireth the shadow, as an hireling looketh for the reward of his work, so am I made to possess months of vanity, and wearisome nights are appointed to me. When I lay down, I say, when shall I rise? And the night be gone. And I am full of tossings to and fro unto the dawning of the day. My flesh is clothed with worms and clods of dust. My skin is broken and become loathsome. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Oh, remember that my life is wind. Mine eye shall see no more good. The eye of him that has seen me shall see me no more. Thine eyes are upon me, and I am not. As the clouds is consumed and vanished away, so he that goeth down to his grave shall come up no more. He shall return no more to his house, neither shall his place know him any more. Therefore, I will not refrain my mouth. I will speak in anguish of my spirit. I will complain and the bitterness of my soul. Folks, that's hopelessness. You know what Christians can say? On the worst of days, they can say, my citizenship is not in this world. Philippians 3.20. I'm a citizen of the kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And when Christ comes again, I will be raised to be with him for all eternity. Job didn't say that. Job, that was once a perfect man and ends up repenting, Job 42, 1 through 6, speaking words of foolishness in Job 7, 1 through 11. Well, hopelessness increases ungodliness. As we look around about us at all the terrible things that are going on over these recent years, it's because hope just is not there. And when people have nothing to live for, they don't care. In Jeremiah 18, 11, and 12, now, therefore, go to speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Return ye now every one from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. So here's the threat of punishment. I want you to think about this in light of current events. Here's the threat of punishment, not from civil authorities, but from the Almighty God. Notice the response. They said, There is no hope. Look at what fear did. Nothing. Fear didn't do anything. They, their response, there is no hope. But we will walk after our own devices and will everyone do the imagination of his evil heart. Hell is not going to create righteousness. Hope will. Think on that. That's the significance of unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We live because of hope. That hope gives us a perspective. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. What happens when people die? They either give a false hope or they have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which are asleep in Jesus will God bring with him. 
For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. The voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Where's comfort coming from? Comfort is coming from hope. Because hope is the anchor of the soul in Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. Hope is the anchor of the soul. In that context, Hebrews 6, 13 through 20 says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise of the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, which have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Look at that. Strong consolation. From what? The hope that's before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, who made a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is there. I'm going to be there too. When the winds of trouble blow in this present evil world, that hope is the anchor of my soul. In Psalm 130 and verse 5, the psalmist says, I will wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and his word do I hope. We look back in the Old Testament. What do we learn from it? Romans 15, 4, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. If you have sinned, you can know that you can repent Turn to God and do works meet repentance because the Bible says that. Yes, Acts 26, 18 through 20. But you see the confirmation of that when you study the scriptures of old. When you look back at how it, many times Israel blew it and yet were able to come back to God. That hope moves us. In Colossians 1, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which we have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. That hope. Peter doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter chapter 1 doesn't just stop and, and, and move on from there. Of course, we're only going down to verse 5. We're going to get more into the context next week. But he doesn't just stop. He goes on to explain. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that faith is not away, reserved in heaven for you.
Think about eternity. Whatever it is you have in this world, it is temporary. Just this past week, I was outside. For now, I think I'm at 12 hours of work. Our neighbor, not his fault at all, had his roof done with spray foam, flat roof, spray foam. And it was not a windy day, so the roofer, I don't think he did anything intentional either, was spraying the foam on the roof. Well, I went outside that day, and our vehicles, Katrina and I, as well as Trey, my son, were just covered in this spray foam. Oh, it's terrible stuff. It does not come off easily at all. On Wednesday last week, we had rain here, and I've been using a clay bar. If you don't know what that is, just, just clay and intended to take imperfections out of paint and stuff out of car paint. I was out there, since it was raining, you got to keep the clay bar wet. Well, here recently, it's been hot. The only time I've been able to work on the vehicles is after the sun goes down. Well, we got some rain, which has been rare, even though this is our monsoon season. We haven't been getting our monsoon rain. So, boy, I jumped outside in the rain. I'm going to town with that clay bar. I keep my vehicles nice. But there's nothing I can do to keep something like that from happening. You can be driving down a road, everything in this life. You can just have the nicest things. You can do all that you can to protect them. You can be driving down a road, vehicle kicks up a rock, shatters your uh, windshield. You could park in a parking lot. I don't know about you, but I park far away. Well, you know what grocery carts tend to do? Now, I mean this kind of like wink, wink. Grocery carts seek out your car. We know grocery carts don't literally seek out cars. What happens is people put them places they don't belong, right? But then the wind blows and whoosh, bam, you got this dent in your vehicle. Your house. This is past week in El Paso. Somebody has a uh, electric couch and uh, you know reclines and stuff on its own. It caught on fire in the middle of the night. Did a bunch of damage to their house. Not one of the brethren, just somebody I feel sorry for, saw the, the report on the news. It doesn't matter how well you take care of things, how much you protect things, how much insurance you have on something. Nothing in this world's going to last, and it's definitely not going to stay new. So when you think about the wording, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away... Oh man, I can't wait. I can't wait. I've been the kind of kid when I was a GI when I was a, a young boy, I my favorite toy was G.I. Joe Men. And I would beg for two of every kind. So I get two cobras and two uh, of this character and that character. I can't remember their names anymore. I'm surprised. I played with them so much. I wanted one for me to play with, and then another if I had friends, because my friends didn't take good care of my toys. If I didn't have two, and one of my friends, Clay, would come over, and we'd play with the G.I. Joe men, I'd tell him, bring his own. If he didn't bring his own, if I didn't have two, I'd put the ones away that I only have one of, 
And boy, I knew which one was mine. You know, I played with those G.I. Joe men, but I wasn't hard with them. I'm, I'm like that. I've always been like that. I guess when you grow up in the housing projects and you don't have much of anything, you want what you do have to last, and that's just been kind of instilled in me. So when I read about heaven, and I know so little about it, but what we do know, I'm stoked. I am stoked. That's not going to be ruined. Eternal. In Matthew 25, the judgment scene there, verse 31 through 46, when the Son of Man shall come in His glory and the holy angels with Him, then He shall sit upon the throne of His glory. Before Him shall be gathered all nations, so separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on His right hand, Come, ye blessed my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. Wait, wait, wait. So as he's giving the record, just so you know, pay attention. He said, for I was hungered, and you gave me meat. Thirsty, and you gave me drink. Stranger, and you took me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, Lord, when saw we thee hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw thee a stranger, to took thee in naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, and in prison, and came unto me? And the king shall answer and say to them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you've done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, in the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he goes on and he gives the opposite, that, they, that he was hungered and they gave him not meat, so forth, so on, the opposite of that conversation. Then in verse 46, These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Wow. Awesome, right? In Hebrews 9, 11 through 15, context of Christ being the priest and the ultimate sacrifice, does Christ become a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of bulls and, uh, or of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified through the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot unto God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he's the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Awesome. Awesome. We're not fighting for something carnal that's going to perish. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receive the prize? So run that ye may obtain. Everyone that striveth for the master is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainty. So fight I, not as he that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it to subjection, lest by any means what I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. People compete for that which is corruptible, but eternity is not. It's an inheritance undefiled. Think about heaven. In Psalm 11 and verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. That's his temple. 
That's his throne. If he made this earth to be temporary, and he did, and he's going to destroy it, and he will, think about his house. Jesus in John 14 says to the disciples in verse 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to my house, that where I am, there ye may be also. Can't wait. It's an inheritance that's not going to fade away. Later in 1 Peter, in chapter 5, verse 4, it says, When the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. 2 Corinthians 4, 18 through 5, 1, While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle will dissolve, talking about the body, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Things on earth get corrupted and decay. It's why Jesus taught Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through or steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Paul, at the end of his physical life, said to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me of that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Think about that. The crown of righteousness coming in the end. That's why we run. That's why we fight. To finish. And like we talked about last week. this We talked about last week this principle from a different direction, but, but it's the same end result. This isn't God's plan B. Adam and Eve didn't come into the world and surprise God and corrupt the garden with sin. And then God said, oops, what am I going to do? This was the plan, notice, Titus 1, 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of, God, faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. How wonderful. That's what we're looking forward to. The faithful in Christ, we're looking forward. And it ties to mercy. All of it comes together. Jude verse 21 says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. It all ties together. It all ties together. But wait. But wait. What if somebody attacks? No. Somebody might attack the United States and might take this country someday. Somebody might prevail over your house. Somebody might prevail over your city. But what's reserved in heaven for us is kept by the power of God. I want you to think about that. By the power of God, through faith. That's how we trust in that. Galatians 3, 8, 9, the scripture, for seeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, 
preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful, faithful Abraham. So our part, faith. His part. In John 10, I love it. Chapter starts off with Jesus being the good shepherd. We're going to skip down a little bit. It's a great chapter. Time's sake. We're just going to read verses 15 through 29. Give us the comfort we need to know. Nobody's coming after that inheritance. John 10, 15 through 29. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father and lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have. He's talking about the Gentiles. So all that pertains to last week's lesson. Which are not of this fold. Them I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. There is a division, therefore, again among the Jews for these sayings. Many of them said, He hath the devil, and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath the devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of Dedication, it was winter. Jesus walked into the temple in Solomon's porch, came the Jews about him, and said to him, How long dost thou make us doubt? If thou be Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because you are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Thank you, God the Father. But all that's contingent upon your faith. That's your part. Your part is, is faith. In 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 12, Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who saved us and called us not with a holy call, or saved us, I'm sorry, with a holy calling, not according to our works. I just flipped those words in there. I'm sorry. So let me reread that. But has, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which has given us in Christ. Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher, and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that, which I've committed unto him against that day. In Hebrews chapter 6, we were in the chapter a little bit earlier in verse 13 through 20. If we back up to verses 9 through 12, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation. Though we thus speak, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, and that you've ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith and endurance. Why? 
Back to Tuesday's podcast, Hebrews 11 and verse 6. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. God will do his part. He will hold on to what he has promised. And nobody is going to take that out of his hand. You put yourself in his care and you trust that he will keep his word. You remain faithful unto death like the church in Smyrna was told in Revelation 2.10. Heaven is yours. That's a simplification. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that we're to walk in a way that pleases God according to his commandments, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2, that we're going to be judged, John 5, 28 and 29, what we've done, good or bad. But when you're doing good, when you're following the Father's will, you don't have to be in fear. You can be in hope. Hope and faith and love. Nobody's going to take that out of God's hands. That salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. When we get down to verse 13 in 1 Peter 1, it says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're, we're looking forward to the end. A few verses later, verses 18 through 20 of 1 Peter 1, for as much as you know you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you. They were in the last times. We are in the last times. In 1 John 2, 15 through 18, it says, Love not the world. Now the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard, the Antichrist shall come. Even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. We are in the last time. The last days, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Salvation is not yet fully realized. It is still to come. In Hebrews 9, 27, 28, it's appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered the bears of sins of many, and unto him that look for him, he shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. When Christ returns, salvation is to come thereafter. What do we do with that? If you're a faithful child of God, if you're obedient to his will, if you've not only initially obeyed the gospel, like the examples we see in the scriptures, like the Corinthians that hearing believed and were baptized in Acts 18.8. And again, that's a simplification. If you're wondering what you've got to do to become a Christian, we need to study that. That's a separate study than this podcast. But if you've done all that the Bible teaches you to do to become a Christian, and you're doing all that the Bible teaches you to do to stay a faithful Christian, you can say, I will be saved. In Romans 5, 8 through 11, 
Paul talking to the saints in Rome, says, God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also join God, our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom now we've received the atonement. Yes. Yes. I may have been God's enemy, but through Christ Jesus, I am no more, and I will be saved. You can have confidence in that. That it's not going to fade away. That it is on a reservation for you. Our next study is going to continue with verses 6 and 7, wherein ye greatly rejoice. What's causing them to greatly rejoice? The lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead unto that in eternal inheritance. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. So that tells us why this is all written. They need hope. We do too. The text goes on, that the trial of your faith, being more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried in the fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That is going to be next Sunday's podcast, if all goes according to plan. I hope you have found this study to be encouraging and edifying and thought-provoking and informative and has you hungry and thirsty to keep on studying. If you've got questions, you don't have to wait till any next podcast. You can call me up, 915-525-7... Hold on, let me back up. 915-525-5794. Or you can email me, brian, B-R-I-A-N, at wordstruth.net. You can visit the website, www.wordstruth.net. A lot of material there, a lot of audio sermons, podcasts too, articles, sermon outlines, verse-by-verse studies... Just thousands and thousands of pages. But you can just tap right in and say, yeah, Brian, you know what, man? I got a question. All right. We'll study the Bible. We'll come to the right conclusion together. We'll see the answers. I'd love to help you. Thank you so much for listening. If all goes according to plan, tune back in Tuesday for the next podcast where we're going to talk about salvation by works alone. I'll just leave you to wonder what that's going to be. I think you'll find that to be a good study too. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.